For those of you um, who have been here Sunday evenings, I started a series of lessons on the book of Philippians. And I do feel led of the Lord to do more teaching this year, and that is not an accident. That's not, it's not something that's come from me. And I believe that as we go through this lesson this morning, that the Lord will touch your heart. Um, because it's not my words, it's his words, and he has orchestrated everything and brought everything into a perfect line. So, as we, if we can go to the first slide. So, I just want to very quickly recap um, the background of the book of Philippians before we get into uh, where we're going to go this morning into the actual uh, scriptures. The Philippian church started from Paul's second missionary journey. Um, Basically, um, from Antioch, um, they went up to try to go um, into into Bithynia, uh, went through Phrygia, um, just just, uh, above Antioch there, and wanted to go into Bithynia and, and spread the word around that area. But God didn't let them. Um, wanted to go down into Asia, um, where there's Smyrna and Ephesus and Miletus and and, Colos- and Colossae, but God didn't. God actually forbade them to do that. So they actually passed by Mysia and went to Troas, um, and God gave Paul a vision and said, and there was a man from Macedonia, which Macedonia you can see is right on the left there across the sea. Um, and, and basically said, come, come over to us. And so they went over, over the sea and went to Neapolis and then very quickly from there went to Philippi. And they spent quite a while there um, preaching the word of God. They had uh, a convert, uh, a lady at, uh, who went to pray by the river and, and, and basically the church started in her house. And then from there, um, there was a... A young girl, a young lady who was possessed with the devil and basically brought, uh, she, she, she was a servant girl and brought her masters a lot of wealth because she had the ability to, not through the power of God, but through the power of Satan, tell people's futures. Um, so she actually followed around Paul and Timothy who had come along with Paul on this trip and what happened was she continued following them and saying, these, these men are the most, uh, uh, the servants of the Most High God who, who tell us the way to salvation. And Paul um, was happy, well, relatively happy for that for a while. It was free advertising. But after a while, he became grieved in the spirit and by the power of God, cast out that demon from her. And when they, they saw that they weren't going to get any more money from, from this girl, they... They basically cast them into prison. Uh, Paul and Timothy were beaten, but then God um, delivered them out of that prison um, uh, by an earthquake and and uh, a set of miraculous uh, circumstances where the uh, the Philippian jailer was actually saved during that. And so from there, they, they basically um, thrust them out of the city and they continued on their journey through Macedonia. Paul 
later on uh, came back in his third missionary journey to Philippi as well. And, uh, and say the book of 2 Corinthians um, is most likely to have been written from Philippi when they came through the second time. And it's, it says something about the, this, this particular region. It says, For when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. The church of Philippi was a church that went through a lot of persecution. They went through a lot of opposition. We can see that from Paul and Timothy. They were cast into prison. They were beaten. They, 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 there was a lot of opposition to the Word of God in that place. And they didn't stop when, when Paul and, and Timothy left. The followers of God suffered a lot of persecution. This was a church that was born out of persecution. Why was that? Well, let's go a little bit into the background of Philippi. Um, this is from Reverend Brian Kinsey's book on, well, study on the Philippians, which I'll refer to a reasonable amount during this, this session, um, this lesson. The city of Philippi. Philippi was originally known as Cronides or the place of fountains. Philip of Macedonia, the father of Alexander the Great, conquered Crenides in 356 BC and renamed the city after himself. In 168 BC, Philippi, along with all of Macedonia, was conquered by the Romans. In 42 BC, Octavian, who would become Augustus Caesar, defeated the Republican armies of Brutus and Cassius in the decisive Battle of Philippi and made the city a Roman colony. J. Dwight Pentecost comments, This meant they had the same rights and privileges as Roman citizens did, sorry, as, as Roman citizens, as did the residents of the city of Rome. They were under the special protective care of the emperor. They had all the privileges afforded by Roman law. Like residents of Rome, they were given privileges of freedom from taxation. They had been made Romans, although they lived in Macedonia, quite a distance from Rome. As a consequence, many of the Roman soldiers chose to settle in Philippi instead of returning to Italy after they had completed their military service. Thus, Philippi became a little Rome. Roman in its loyalties, Roman in its law, Roman in its philosophy and outlook. It was here the apostle came to begin to penetrate the continent of Europe with the gospel of salvation. Philippi served both as an outpost of the Roman Empire and a checkpoint against the Thracian tribes of the mountain country to the north. It was also a significant stop on the Via Ignatia, a major east-west road extending some 500 miles across what is known as the Balkan Peninsula, uniting the ancient city of Dyrrhachium on the Adriatic Sea with Byzantium gateway to the Black Sea. Though the Roman road was not constructed until the second century, the route existed earlier and facilitated trade between Europe and Asia. Because of Philippi's status as a Roman colony, the major city in its province and its position on, its, on a prominent trade route, Philippi was a prosperous city and the ideal starting point for the spread of the gospel into Europe. It was a rich city. It was a little Rome. It, it was Roman in everything. 
Rome, at that particular point in time, was persecuting the church. And so it's no surprise that a little Rome would also be persecuting the church. Right, um, if we can just very quickly go through what Philippi looks like now. There's not an awful lot of it left. Um, Ancient theatre, the side entrance of the theatre, and the forum. And that's the ruins of the centre of the city. The forum is there in the foreground, and the market is in the background. All right. When we look at the book of Philippians, the first thing that someone who's studying a book tries to do is go through the book very quickly and go over it again and then try to find the actual theme. What holds the book together? What, what, what's the main purpose of it being written? What, what, what message is it trying to convey to the people who it was written to and to us today? And I, I, as I went through that process, I was, was trying to find a central theme and, and it, it wasn't happening and, and I, um, I, was, I was struggling to find it. But then everything started to fall into place as, as I kept going through. The theme of the book of Philippians is that the church should always be moving forward and not backward no matter the trials or the persecution that we face. It's simple, but it comes, it, it, it flows through every part of the book of Philippians. And the, the fact that I actually chose the book of Philippians, well, I was actually led of the Lord to do that well before I knew our theme for this year of go, of moving forward, of, of preaching. And God has a way of orchestrating things. God has a way of bringing things into place, even though we can't see it at that particular point in time. And so that's the theme of the book, that the church should always be moving forward, not backwards, no matter what the trials or the persecution that we face. So let's start with chapter 1. It's a very good place to start. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. Next slide. Thank you. All right. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. So, um, so from Reverend Kinsey's book, Paul mentioned Timotheus, or Timothy is accompanying him in writing to the Philippian church, even though it's understood that Paul himself was the author of the letter's content. Paul was a a mentor to Timothy, and he looked up to Paul. He was there with him on that very first missionary journey to Philippi. And so it was natural that Paul would write with with Timothy um, to the church there. They knew Timothy. They, They were well aware of who he was. Paul identified himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. He didn't mention his status as an apostle, and that shows the attitude of his heart towards the Philippian congregation. They were more than just someone, a, a church that was, was uh, founded by him, that, that demanded respect. In writing to the Romans, 
Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians, Paul asserted his apostleship as a way of lending authority to his words. He said, you know, um, Paul, an apostle. Paul called to be an apostle. That sort of wording, but not to the Philippians. With the Philippians, Paul felt no need to do so. He enjoyed their respect based on their close relationship and not his position alone. This was a church that was very dear to Paul's heart. This book was written to three groups of people at Philippi, to the saints, to the bishops, and to the deacons. They're mentioned specifically by name. Saints were the everyday saints in the church that held no official position in the church. Bishops were the church leaders who ministered spiritually to the saints. For example, the pastor, as we would know it today. Deacons were the people who held positions to minister to the saints in physical things, including administrative tasks. In other words, this book was written to everybody in the church at Philippi. Nobody was left out. And this makes sense given the overall theme of the book. Evangelism is for everybody. Unity requires everybody. And everybody will go through trials and persecution. It's not just one group or one part of the church. Philippians uh, verse, well, chapter 1, verse 2. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. As it says in uh, Reverend Kinsey's book, Paul's greeting to the church in Philippi is Paul's standard salutation, repeated nearly exactly the same in all of his letters. The repetition should not diminish the impact, however. Paul's genuine desire is for believers to experience the grace of God in their lives in an ongoing way and to have that peace that passes all understanding that comes only from a connection to Jesus Christ. Right, next verse. Next slide. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. The church of Philippi was very close and dear to Paul's heart. These words that he's penning make this very, very clear. Paul felt a very special connection to this church, and this was at least partly through their shared life experiences, as we will see when we get to verse 7. This fellowship was not superficial or easily forgotten, It implies a deep and continuing relationship between Paul and the church at Philippi. Also from Brother Kinsey's book, we must never settle for a surface level of fellowship that focuses on small talk or trivial interactions. Fellowship in the gospel means coming together and combining our influences and our resources to accomplish a higher and greater purpose. The church must be a fellowship in which we have this goal in common to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who do not know him and with Christians who are struggling and need encouragement. If we ever get outside the simplicity of those two ministries, then we have lost our reason for being. Strong words, but the truth is there. As Paul went on to share with the Philippians, there is also a fellowship in suffering. Failure to see Christ in our suffering is one reason many fall away and keep from developing an attitude of joy. Elsewhere, Paul wrote that all who wish to live a godly life in Christ will suffer. 
That's in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. So suffering is a normal part of the Christian experience. During times of suffering, Christians need the fellowship of the gospel. We rely on one another for support in prayer, for encouragement, and sometimes for material support, just as Paul did with the Philippians as well. Verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 6 really underlines the focal point of the entire book. When we are committed to following Jesus and growing in him, no matter the hardship or the persecution, then Jesus, who started the work in, the, in you and me in the first place, will continue that pl- process until we go to meet him in the clouds. It's not going to be by our own strength or our own determination alone. That on its own will never be enough. That will always let us down. But only by his power and by his strength will we continue to grow and move forward even in the hardest of times. From Brother Kinsey's book, As for God, he intends to see us through to the end. Everything we now face will make sense sooner or later though that might be a thousand years from now. The difficulties and trials we experience work for our good and for the furtherance of the gospel. Though they may be painful now, when we arrive in heaven with a grand shout, all will seem worthwhile. As we have that confidence, we will also have joy. If we waver, doubting whether God is going to finish what he started, we will experience failure and discouragement. We can and must be confident that God will indeed bring us through to ultimate victory. He says it in his word. We can take confidence. God is not a liar. He's not a man that he should lie, it says, in a different place. God will keep us. God will protect us. God will bring us through from one, from where we are now to the end. If we keep trusting in him and don't give up, no matter what the trials we are, are that we face. Verse 7, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. It's no wonder Paul had such a great affection for the church in Philippi. People in the church in Philippi had been arrested just like Paul and put in bonds. The church at Philippi had needed to both defend the gospel and preach the gospel while under great persecution, just like Paul experienced all the way through his walk with God. It's fascinating that Paul calls being persecuted and arrested as being partakers of Paul's grace. It doesn't seem like there is anything at all gracious about persecution or imprisonment to our ears. But I'm reminded of what Paul said in a different passage. Next slide, please. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, Paul is talking about his life. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. God revealed many things to Paul. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice or three times that it may depart from me. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, 
that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. And that is the secret and what Paul is referring to as his grace. When Paul was weak in his flesh through all that he suffered, God gave him a powerful spiritual strength that overcame all weakness. He was able to see everything in the right perspective. Persecution and sufferings weren't going to cause Paul to give up, to throw in the towel and go back to being a Pharisee. He was committed and determined to go through anything to get to the prize at the end of the race. As we're going to see in a later lesson, that's also in Philippians. Paul's circumstances didn't define how committed he was to Jesus. He was determined to be committed to Jesus no matter what his circumstances were. And I'll say that again. Paul's circumstances didn't define how committed he was to Jesus. He was determined to be committed to Jesus no matter what his circumstances were. Verse 8. For God is my record. How greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. That you may approve things that are excellent. That you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. From Brother Kinsey's book, Thinking back on the previous six weeks of our lives, any of us might easily recognize that the things that caused us to be most upset, perhaps even to lose our temper, to say unkind things or make rash decisions, were really of no consequence. We frequently spend emotional energy, fill ourselves with anxiety and increase our blood pressure over things that are truly not important. Yet when we arrive at church week after week and witness no baptisms, sense no unity and see no one filled with the Holy Ghost, we take it in stride. We are prone to get upset over the wrong things and totally ignore the right things. Paul wanted the Philippians to get excited over the right things. Paul knew that having a heart abounding in love and ever-growing knowledge not only would cause them to be tolerant of trivial matters, but also would motivate them to extend real effort on the things that matter most. They would not bicker with one another, but would have a burning desire for unity. They would care less about the minor tensions that invariably arise in a group of people and would care much more about their mutual transformation into the likeness of Christ. Paul prayed also that the believers would be sincere. The Greek word translated sincere literally means to be tested by sunlight. If we're in Christ and possess his mind, then we have no fear of standing in the light, in his light. As Christians... We must all face the test. And only a character that has been disciplined by the Master himself, Jesus, and molded by the Spirit will be able to withstand the rigors of the test. It was Paul's prayer that they pass this test. Paul also prayed that mature Christians would be without offense until the day of Christ. Proper motivation, sincerity, results in proper behavior towards others, or in other words, being without offense. When we are guided by love, grounded in knowledge and sound judgment, and sincere in our approach to others, our conduct will be blameless. 
This means that our lives will not cause others to stumble and we will be ready to stand before the judgment seat of Christ when he returns. Here are two good questions to test any prospective action. Will it create offense in others? And number two, will it bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus or will he be disgraced by our conduct and our behavior? In these days, and so much more than we, we ever really give it credit, the problem lies as much with taking offense as with giving it. Many people are easily offended. And that can be especially true among believers, among the saints in the church. Often this results from envy or jealousy, which signals a lack of sincerity. How much better to be sincere and trusting in our posture toward others, giving them the benefit of the doubt whenever possible. When our words do not seem to be valued or our gifts and talents appear to be overlooked, we do best to take our frustrations to the Lord and not take them out on one another. Generally, when our love abounds in knowledge and wise judgment, we will be overrun with opportunities to minister to others. We should not allow our interactions with others, especially within the body of Christ, to detract from the gospel, to detract from the church moving forward. Verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. Paul was praying for the Philippian church that they would continue to grow in Jesus in every way, despite the constant persecution, the sufferings and the hardships that they faced. God's kingdom and God's church must continue to move forward because we have a leader who has power, all power and all authority over every situation and every circumstance. The word of God is not bound. God's kingdom is not bound when we walk with him. Verse 12, but a word that you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. So that my bonds in Christ, Paul was in prison at this particular point in time that he writes this book, are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. From Brother Kinsey's book again, Paul wanted to preach the gospel in Rome. It was one of his lifelong dreams. But instead of going as a preacher, God used a prison to send Paul to Rome. Such is the sovereignty of God. What looked like failure was used by God to advance his kingdom. He often uses strange means to fulfill his will. Just because things don't go the way we think they should go or the way that we plan doesn't mean that we're outside of the will of God or that God isn't having a purpose and a plan in what is happening. Thus, it was from a Roman prison that Paul wrote to the Philippians. And the things he alluded to included false arrest, a plot against his life, a harrowing shipwreck, and living in confinement in Rome for more than two years. Despite these circumstances, Paul was eager for the Philippians to understand that the end result of his troubles was not despair, was not throwing in the towel, but it was the furtherance of the gospel. Rather than thinking of himself as a helpless prisoner, Paul saw that his circumstances were enabling the gospel to be carried into new areas. God still wants his children to advance the gospel by preaching to unreached people. Occasionally, he arranges our circumstances in such a way that we can be nothing else but pioneers 
to go into new places. That is how the gospel originally came to Philippi. Paul had first tried to enter another territory, but the Holy Spirit shut that door and instead directed Paul to Macedonia through a vision. At other times, God uses circumstances that seem like problems or interruptions as tools for pioneering the gospel into new places. Paul realized his present imprisonment, instead of being a hindrance, was being used by God to preach the gospel and reach even in to the elite praetorian guard of the Romans. The things we view as problems may be fresh opportunities to minister in the name of Jesus. It's all about perspective. It's all about being kingdom-minded. It's all about realizing that God has a purpose and a plan for our lives, even though we can't see why it's all happening at that particular point in time. Verse 13, Paul's imprisonment had led him to the very heart of the Roman Empire. There he was guarded by the emperor's own troops, the elite of the Roman army. In effect, Paul's landing in Rome, regardless of the circumstances, was a stealth attack on the empire itself. This new religion sweeping across the provinces had already become an economic and political issue in the, in the Roman Empire. As people came to believe in Jesus Christ, they no longer worshipped in the temples or sacrificed to idols. There was a lot of money in that kind of thing. As Pete, um, through his captivity in Rome, Paul was able to take this revolutionary gospel that had already caused an uproar in Philippi, Ephesus and Jerusalem to the capital of Rome itself. It has been said that while Paul was in Rome, he was most likely chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day, with shifts changing every six hours. Ever the evangelist, Paul undoubtedly wasted no time in sharing the gospel with the very soldiers who kept him confined. They would have heard his entire story from conversion as a zealous persecutor of the church to a follower of Christ to his appointment as an apostle to the Gentiles to his mission to Asia and Macedonia to his own persecution for his faith in Jesus and finally to his imprisonment awaiting trial before Caesar. The apostle who worked the gospel into every conversation, even his trial before King Agrippa, certainly would have shared the way of salvation with his captors. There's, no, there's no, no, no other way to look at it. He definitely would have. According to one legend, the guards were changed every 15 minutes to prevent Paul from converting them. While that cannot be proven, we do know that Paul's evangelistic efforts were successful. The reason for Paul's, uh, in, later on in, in the book of Philippi, which we'll get to in another lesson, um, it talks about the gospel being in Caesar's household. Um, the reason for Paul's imprisonment and the reason for his hope became known throughout the whole palace guard. Because of Paul's confinement, the gospel made, inroad, made inroads into the house hold of Caesar himself. Little did Paul's enemies realize that the chains which, with which they bound him would actually release the gospel to spread further and faster. As Paul later wrote, I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. Paul did not complain about his circumstances, but instead asked God to use them for the sake of the gospel, and that prayer was indeed answered. It's all about how we look at it. Being in prison and, and being under guard for um, all, all the time seems like the end of the road, seems like a lost opportunity, seems like 
the seems like you're not able to do anything, but God can use anything for his glory. How do we maintain the joy and optimism that Paul displayed from a Roman prison? The secret is to look upon our circumstances as God-given opportunities for the furtherance of the gospel. When we do so, we will rejoice at what God is going to do instead of complaining about what God did not do. Paul could have spent his time whinging and complaining about how he was unjustly accused in the first place, and that is how he got to be in Rome in the first place. But he didn't. He knew that he was in the will of God. He knew that he was going to do the work of God no matter what circumstances he was in. We can be witnesses for Christ no matter where we are emotionally. The power of the gospel is greater than our circumstances, and it is greater than the problems we are working through. God can use any situation, even our struggles and troubles, as an occasion for spreading the gospel if we have the right mindset. Paul wanted the Philippians to understand this so they, rather than being fearful on his behalf, would be emboldened to proclaim the word even more freely, just as others were doing, as we see in the next verse. Verse 14, And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confidence in my bonds, by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of a contention not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, and yea, I will rejoice. Paul's main concern was not the motives of the people who preached Jesus, but that the church, the gospel, was moving forward. God has a way of working around the motives of people and making something good come from even the worst situation, as Paul later writes in the book of Romans, and that should be the next slide. Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. You see, some were trying to use the gospel, preaching the gospel as a way to get Paul further in trouble, to increase the bad things that were happening to him. They were lifting up a kingdom for themselves. They were trying to further their own means and their own ends. They were, they were probably um, people that saw themselves as, as rivals to Paul and wanted to, to get the preeminence, wanted to, to, to do what they wanted to do in the church and, and forget about what Paul was preaching. From Brother Kinsey's book again, sadly, the spirit of competition that did so much damage in the early church did not die out in the first century. Theological and personal rivalries have been a destructive force within congregations and within Christianity down to the present day. Though we seldom admit it, Much of our own gospel activity may be motivated as much by a desire to beat the competition of another church as to further the cause of Christ. What are our motives for preaching? Do we want to be as big as another church in Australia or even overseas? 
our motives need to be right. We might wonder how much money has been raised, how many buildings erected, how many sermons preached, and yes, even how many converts are won due to a desire to be larger, more successful, or more important in God's kingdom than the church down the street. We should never compare ourselves with our brothers and sisters, with churches in Perth, with churches across Australia. Within congregations and denominations, rivalries can exist between leaders as well. People are people. There continue to be leaders who serve, sometimes with great passion, motivated mostly by the desire to be seen as more capable or effective or theologically astute or even more godly than their fellow leaders. When these false ambitions are not realized and surrendered to Jesus, they can result in great damage to the church. Perhaps we can all think of a congregation that was split in two by a rivalry that had little to do with the gospel, but much to do with the personalities and preferences of the leaders involved. It's happened before in Australia. <clears throat> the damage that it does to churches, to congregations, to saints, people lose their salvation when there are, are these kind of things within the church. If I could get someone to the piano, please. <clears throat> that situation cannot, it must not happen to this church. It's not an option. The work of God is moving forward. We have our vision of moving forward, of going this year. We're having regular baptisms. People are being filled with the Holy Ghost. But a lack of unity, a difference of opinion, a challenge to the church leadership could derail everything that we've worked together for so hard and for so long in just a few months or even a few days. We must have unity among us and between us if we were to continue to move forward as a church. We must support the pastor. We must support his vision, support his leadership, not work to undermine it at every opportunity. Without unity, we have nothing. We will never reach the mark that Jesus is setting for us, for this church, for this year. Our church goals, our church vision will come to nothing if there is not unity. We get put out by the smallest things, things that don't even matter. What will happen if some real persecution or suffering comes our way? We've gone through nothing. This church in Philippi, it was persecuted on a regular basis. It, was, it went through bonds. It went through imprisonment. It was persecuted. And yet it still stood strong. And yet there was still a church there that Paul could write to and say how much he loved them, how much he loved them, how much he, he, he knew what they were going through. The first century church, the Philippian church, Paul's ministry, they were all highlighted by constant persecution, trials and suffering. But we whinge and complain when the church services don't go exactly the way that we want them to. It's nothing. It's nothing. Why don't we just let it go? Why don't we just let it run off our backs like water off a duck? I fear that when real persecution comes, 
we won't be able to stand. Especially if we can't get past our petty differences and our squabbles. We need unity in the church now, more than ever before. We don't know what we're going to face in a week's time or a month's time or a year's time. This world is getting worse. This world is putting more and more laws in place that go against the very foundation of the church. We need to be ready now. We need to have a mindset now that whatever happens, we're going to move forward, that this church is going to move forward no matter what the trials and the persecutions are that we face. We need to have unity between ourselves now because when persecution comes, we won't be able to stand without it. We need to lift each other up and not tear each other down. Let's check our hearts and our motives this morning. Why are we doing the things that we do? Have we let ourselves get distracted by the things that don't really matter? Let's resolve our differences that don't even matter. Let's move forward as a church, as one body, not separate factions, not trying to undermine, not working against each other, but in prayer for each other, lifting each other up, helping each other through our our struggles, our trials, our situations. We need to be unified. We need to be one body. That's not an option. We don't know what's going to happen. And so I open up the front of the church this morning. Let's make certain of where we are in God. If we realize that we've been going down the wrong direction, now's the time to say, God, I need to be in the right place with you. And if you just want to come and and dedicate your life to Jesus, now is the time to do that as well. And just say, God, I make the decision now that I'm going to follow you no matter what, the trials, the persecutions, the circumstances that I face. Lord, it's nothing compared to you. It's nothing compared to your kingdom. So if you would stand.